Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series, Remaining Steadfast in Distressing Times, with a message entitled, Pleasing to God. So turn to your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 8, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. J.C. Ryle once wrote, God's people see only one thing, live for one thing, are swallowed up in one thing, and that one thing is to please God. He's right, of course. It's our prayer in the morning, Lord, I wish this day to please you and then at night, if I have not pleased you in all that I have done and I have not, O Lord, have mercy. Come, Holy Spirit, and drive out from me all that does not please you. We've been studying the book of 1 Thessalonians, and up till now, that is, through our study in the first three chapters, we found two occasions in which Paul thanks God for the Thessalonian believers and one description of Paul's attitude towards them. That is, he was gentle and loving among them. He worked hard in his conduct, along with that of Silas, was holy, righteous, and blameless. And all of this was set against a context. After a very short stay in their city, a riot had ensued, and and Paul and his missionary companions were thrown out of the city. And you might have thought that a church, which was now made up of a group of people who were but one month old in the Lord, well, they might quickly lose their way. But Paul had sent Timothy to them, and he had faithfully shepherded them in following Jesus. And, And that's the reason for Paul, when he writes this letter, to make mention of how he had personally lived. He had modeled how they should live, and that's also the reason he spends so much time thanking God for them and encouraging them. They are doing remarkably well. These new believers are living out their newfound faith in Jesus in the midst of some very dark and distressing times, and yet they were remaining steadfast. And that's the reason why, at first, it might seem like the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians is like a long introduction. In some way, that is exactly what it is, but it was so necessary, given the unique situation under which this church had begun, to affirm them and to encourage them in the way in which Paul had. In fact, his affirmation, it's not gratuitous or unwarranted. This church, having begun in less than ideal circumstances, really were doing remarkably well, and Paul wants them to know it. But we also notice the tail end of a very telling statement, and here, I'm referring to 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 10, and it says, As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking to your faith. Paul seems to be indicating that the usual training he would have given to a new group of believers had not yet been completed. The foundation hadn't been completely laid. And so now, the rest of this letter, we're going to find Paul addressing three issues— that need to be a part of basic training for every believer. The first is about living lives pleasing to God, and that's what we're going to study today. And then Paul will deal with basic Christian lifestyle issues and how to interact with other unbelievers in the city, those who might quite possibly be hostile to the gospel. And then finally, we're going to deal with hope, the commodity that will make them increasingly steadfast in the increasingly dark times in which they live. So let's read today's text, which is 1 Thessalonians 4, 1-8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. 
For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, and this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So let's start from the beginning. (laughs) And you know, I might smile at the very first word of chapter four. It's finally, finally. You know, there's still two more chapters to go, and the Apostle Paul uses the word finally. (laughs) You know, that reminds me of the grandfather who took his grandson to church for the very first time in his life. And for everything that happened, the youngster asked, what does that mean? I mean, he wanted to know about communion, about the songs they sang, about the offering, and even why the preacher had gotten up and started talking. Well, the grandfather was patient trying to answer all the questions his young grandson asked. And and when the preacher said, in conclusion, and as he said that, the grandson said, what does that mean, Grandpa? And the grandfather said, actually, with this preacher, it don't mean a thing. (laughs) And that's what you might think with Paul when he inserts the word finally right here. But Paul's not signaling that his letter is coming to an end. Here he means, finally, I get to some of the things that are needed to supply you with what's lacking in your faith or your basic training. And interestingly, I would think then that everything Paul mentions here are a part of what we might call Christianity 101. Paul would have already taught them the basis for the faith. He would have taught them that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah that the scriptures declared that the Messiah must suffer and die and rise again, and, and that Jesus' death glorified God, and that his death also paid for the sins of all who trusted in him. That kind of thing was basic. But the new believers also learned that Christ made ethical and moral demands on their lives, and whatever ethical demands he might have, well, they're summed up in verse 1, where Paul says how you ought to walk and to please God. So walking, in many ways, it's a synonym for living. You know, in the ancient world, most traveling was done by walking. And so here you have an image. As you're walking through life, or as we would put it in our world, as we're living out our lives, we need to in everything from daily tasks to future planning, from relationships at home to relationships at work, to everything, make it our aim to find out what pleases God. So that's the basic command. And as Paul mentions this, it's clear that this is a part of their training. He had started it, but he hadn't finished it. And interestingly enough, he isn't pointing this out as if he has noticed that in in some way they're not pleasing God. He makes mention of the fact that he knows they're doing it, but he wants them to do it more and more. And that, well, it's important. We need to learn how to make progress. We need to learn how to grow. We need to become ever more keenly aware of every single area in life where we might either please God or we might be failing to please him in some fashion. Now, given the seriousness of this matter and given that it's so basic to Christian discipleship, well, you might wonder why instead of using a word of command, Paul begins with softer language. Notice he says, we urge you, not we command you. So why this softer language? One of the things that we learn from Paul is that he does quite often make commands. 
But when he does, it's because either there's been an oversight or there's even a rebellion against God's commands. But when there's compliance or when there's willingness, well, he simply urges us on. And yet, even as he's urging them, he wants to be sure that the Thessalonians understand that this urging is happening in the Lord Jesus. That is, this is how Jesus wants you to live. And then in verse 2, he also makes it clear that this teaching about pleasing the Lord, these are instructions that came from the Lord Jesus himself. It, It was never Paul's idea. All Christians ought always to ask and answer of everything they do, does this please the Lord? I wonder if you're doing that. You know, it's a great practice, you know, to to ask it of ourselves every day. I'm planning, and then you fill in the blank, whatever you're planning, and then you ought to say, oh, but I'll only do this if it pleases the Lord. How about after you've had coffee with a friend and then ask, did the conversation I have, did that please the Lord? And then ask it in your work, in your school. Ask it in the interactions you have in your family. Was Jesus pleased in what just happened? Was he pleased with me? And I know there are all manner of people who allow their personal opinions about these matters to win the day. And so they imagine what it might be that pleases the Lord, but but they don't have an objective way of checking that out. And so they live with impressions and hunches. But more so, you know, most of them aren't aware that what our culture calls good and what our culture applauds, and what our culture extols, and and the stories our culture constantly tells us about what is good and what's worthy and what's to be admired. And this has infested all of our souls. And so they foolishly think that what they think is good is what Jesus thinks is good. The greatest problem to our growth in the Lord is that we don't understand what the Lord's will is. And so when we come to verse 3, Paul is very explicit. This, he says, is the will of God. Pay attention. Do you listen? All of you who are struggling with the will of God, listen up. I will declare to you what God wants. Many of us find ourselves at home more than usual these days. The solitude can be a refreshing discipline, but a bit more challenging when it's thrust upon us. Today, I wanted to remind you of the many Bible teaching resources you can access for free through Back to the Bible Canada. Every weekday, listen to Dr. Newfeld on this radio station, online at backtothebible.ca, or through our podcast or free mobile app. Not only today's program, but there's a vast library of Bible teaching series online. Other resources include our weekly young adult program, In Doubt, or the daily airing of Laugh Again. And most recently, for five weeks beginning March 22nd, we'll begin to air a special Bible teaching video series aired every Sunday morning available at backtothebible.ca or the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. For more information about all of these resources and more, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I know a great many people who are struggling to discover God's will in their lives. You know, those of us who are younger usually see that in terms of, you know, actually two things. The first, career, and the second, marriage. Lord, show me what to do in these two matters. And then, of course, there are, you know, new career opportunities, new business ventures, special opportunity to give sacrificially, while the list of finding God's will goes on and on. 
An elderly person might pray, Lord, is this the time that I should go into a nursing home? Another might pray, Lord, is this the time for us to pull up roots for our family and move to the next city? And truth be told, a great many people will say that they felt the Lord moving and that the time was right for for something. Years ago, there was a book entitled Decision Making and the Will of God, and, and I think it was a very good book, but again, it seems surprising to me that a great deal of our discussion on the matter of the will of God gets taken up in questions that can only bring a subjective answer. And against this background, modern-day Christians ought to hear Paul's words of 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, like a thunderclap from heaven. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Well, the word sanctification can be translated holiness. So then notice that Paul uses the word holiness again in verse 4 when he speaks of controlling our body in holiness. Then in verse 7 where he affirms that God has not called us for impurity but for holiness. And then finally in verse 8 where he speaks about the person of the Holy Spirit. You know, it's vital for us when we speak of the Holy Spirit that we all remember what kind of a spirit he is. He is the spirit of holiness. Now, that word holiness or sanctification, well, it's a word that gains its meaning from the First Testament. You know, in the Old Testament, we find it most often related to another concept, and that's the concept of separation. Let's use one example, and it's found in Leviticus 20, verses 22 to 23. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out, and you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. Don't you dare be like the nations around you. And with that comes the conclusion of verse 26. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. And that's the concept that pervades the Old Testament. Now, in order to prevent, let's say, you know, the people of God from worshiping the idols that their neighbors worship or preventing them from adopting their customs, the Old Testament develops peculiar ways of eating and dressing, ways that would mark the people of God as separate and distinct. That's all called holiness. Now, in the New Testament, there are no longer rules regarding food and dress. But the call to be distinct, to be uniquely set aside unto the Lord, to be different from the nations around us, that call remains. But how? Look look again at verses 3 to 5. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, I've made mention of the fact that the ancient Greek and Roman world was a highly sexualized and sensualized culture in a way that would scandalize any ancient Jew. But the minute the gospel broke outside of Jewish boundaries into the Gentile world, it became foundational now to teach all of God's people the meaning of sexual holiness. And by the way, their culture was as sensuous as our culture is today. If you don't feel the pressure of the sensual nature of our culture, you're either living in a bubble somewhere or you've totally capitulated already. So when Paul insists that basic Christian training, Christianity 101, will include, among other things, sexual holiness, 
We need to be very clear about what he's talking about. We're not going by assumptions, nor by what our culture considers healthy or normal. We're learning to be sexually holy and making a distinction between ourselves and the culture in which we live. We're separating ourselves. So what is sexual holiness? Paul says that you refrain from sexual immorality. The Greek word is the word porneia, and it's a word that gets widely used in the New Testament. It is imperative for all Christians to understand what that word means. It is the will of God that you refrain from porneia. Now, in the Greek, the word porneia didn't mean pornography. So then what did it mean? It was a very broad term meant to refer to a a wide range of sexual practices outside of marriage. Do you want a list? Good. Let's start. It refers to adultery. That means being married and having sexual relations with someone who's not your husband or wife. It also refers to premarital sex, even if that sex is with a person to whom you are engaged. It refers to prostitution or visiting a prostitute. It refers to incest. It refers to all acts of homosexuality. It refers to bestiality. In short, it refers to all sexual acts outside of the bounds of heterosexual marriage. Any sex outside of heterosexual marriage is porneia, and it's not pleasing to our Lord Jesus Christ. That's not my word. That's the word of Scripture. I know in our culture, people will say it is not possible to be celibate outside of marriage. And that's why in preparing people for sexual holiness, Paul adds that each of you know or learn how to control your own body. And by the way, it's possible to translate this phrase to teach you to take a wife to himself. But given the context, I think our translation is right. The Greek word for body is a unique one here, and it's here alone, and it's the word body that's sometimes translated as wife. But here I think Paul means that he thinks of the body as a vessel which we control rather than a vessel that controls us. Learn to take authority over your body. You know, a more narrow view is that Paul means the vessel is the sexual organ. It's a Christian virtue. Indeed, it is the will of God that you control your sex organs and bring them in subjection to the will of God. This is God's will for you and is far more profound than knowing what career to pursue. I mean, think of the irony of it all. People asking the Lord what career he wants him or her to pursue, and in the meantime, ignoring the known will of God for their lives. Don't go asking God for his will in anything if, after he's already told you his will, you ignore it or disobey it. Now then, having stated it this way, Paul gives three things for our consideration. The first is that we need to take care that we don't wrong our brother in this matter. And yeah, that might refer to adultery, but it might also refer to premarital sex. Any violation of sexual holiness, says Paul, is a wrong that is done to someone else. I once heard a pastor describe what used to be spoken about as extramarital sex back in the 1970s. People said, I'm going to get me a piece, a piece of tail, a piece of the body of that person. And this pastor said these words were prophetic. They not only got a piece of the other, they left a piece of themselves as well. So that in our day, people can't enjoy the bliss of marital sex because they drag the pieces of former sexual encounters into the marriage bed. And so what's required is absolute and complete confession of sin and a coming to Christ for cleansing. 
Now, the second thing that Paul adds about this is that the Lord is an avenger of all these things. Remember, when the New Testament uses the word Lord, it almost always refers to the Lord Jesus. Jesus will avenge these sins. Jesus himself sees this as an affront to his holiness. We're not created for porneia. We're created for the Lord. And if we violate his revealed will, he's going to demand it of us. It's a solemn warning that not everyone who calls Jesus Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, after that, Paul adds one more matter, and that matter is found in verse 8. He says, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God. That's to say, this is not one perspective of the Christian life. This is God's will for all of his followers. God wants sexual holiness for all his people. For the Holy Spirit who is given to us is the Holy Spirit. I know this kind of teaching is shocking to some people today who've not known that sexual holiness is a part of basic Christianity. And just a word for those who struggle to control their own bodies. I'm not unaware that this requires each of us to give ourselves diligently to this. But where we are weak, the Holy Spirit will help us. May we, each of us, as we learn to follow our Lord, always ask our most basic and fundamental question, what pleases the Lord? And once I find out to tell the Lord, yeah, Lord, I'm all over that, my answer is yes. Thanks so much, John. Let me ask you this, though. I think it would be true to say that at least the definition of sexual purity was well-defined and accepted for almost 2,000 years. So why is it that in our generation that definition has been so altered? It has been altered in our day when theologians, or so-called theologians, have called us to question the Christian sexual morality. It's very interesting, however, to compare our day to the Roman world. You know, in the Roman world, which I had already said was highly sexualized and sensualized, You know, our world is that way, too. I mean, we can trace that back to the 1960s and the explosion of the sexual revolution. Um, The fact now that we have birth control in which we think we can engage in all manner of sexual activity without any consequences attached to it. But all of that has gained footing, and a great many so-called theologians have encouraged this. We, We just need to return back to that which we know is true. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series Remaining Steadfast in Distressing Times right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hi, this is Dr. Newfeld, and I want to express how blessed and overwhelmed I've been by letters, notes, emails, even phone calls of appreciation that we've all received. We consider the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada as a true privilege and calling, and it would seem God has allowed us to make a difference for decades in the lives of Canadians. In this season, we pray many have heard and considered the message of hope that comes through the gospel. It's why we exist. This month is a significant one in the Back to the Bible calendar, a month where we reach out across the country to ask for you to help in a noteworthy way to sustain this ministry. You've probably heard others on the broadcast share the specific financial targets, so you likely know what they are, but can I simply ask, if you're able, consider a special gift to the ministry this month. We'd be so grateful. Just call 1-800-663-2425 or visit our website at backtothebible.ca. We appreciate you and may the Lord bless you richly.